Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you, not, you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Thanks, Bill. Hey, good morning. Happy Father's Day. It's great to spend it with you. So it, if you've been with us for a long time, you may know that we typically do these topically-based series, and that's kind of where I've grown comfortable. I love the idea of taking cultural moments and just things that are happening and then just demonstrating the, the relevance of the text in, in every season and every moment. But we started this thing way back after Easter where we're just teaching our way through Matthew one chapter at a time, talking our way through Matthew one chapter at a time. And uh, for me, there's something unique happening just as I'm recognizing like, hey, there's some false premises that I was working from there that we still couldn't talk about culture because I had no idea where this would land on Father's Day and yet it landed on words and the words that we use and the danger of words. And I, I suspect probably every dad in the room can appreciate, every human in the room could appreciate uh, that it's, it's hard to find an easier way to, to hurt somebody else or love someone else than by effectively or, or ineffectively or effectively using words. So here's the question that I want to ask this morning, and then I'll give a little bit of context and we'll just jump into it, but uh, what if it's always easier to try to control someone than it is to love them? And I'm indebted this morning to Dallas Willard and the Divine Conspiracy, as well as Marty Solomon in the Bay Ma podcast and Tim Mackey in a series that he did from Matthew years ago. But what if what, if what Jesus understands is it's always easier to try to control someone than love them? Uh, what if he, and we'll get into this a little bit better than anybody else, understands there is a difference? But what if he knows that that's kind of at the core of, of what creates human ill? It's at the core of what causes humans with their best of intentions to to run counter to God's intention for creation and, and relationship, the, the ways that we can mess it up the best or the worst? And, and what if he wants to help us with it? And here, here's the astounding piece, because I, I, if you're anything like me, the vows thing is confusing. We'll come back to that, but let's just kind of look at context for a second. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're getting teacher Jesus. Like in the first four chapters, we got just this introduction to this historical person, and here's who he is. He's God with us. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tackles what I think are the two most important questions any human's ever asked, and they're the ones every human asks, every society, every culture, every country. And it's this question of who can be good and what is good, who is good. And as we've explored in the Beatitudes, my, my opinion, and again, I'm leaning into others, is that what Jesus is doing in the, in the Beatitudes isn't, a, isn't telling us attitudes to be. What he's doing is demonstrate that, that God's kingdom comes in spite of us all. What he's saying is that God's kingdom is wide open and available. You no longer have to fit this very narrow section of society, which in Jesus' day was a certain kind of Jewish person. And what he's saying is the kingdom of God, in Mark's gospel, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's wide open. It's here for the taking. And having answered the question, any of us can be good because of who God is and the availability of the kingdom, then he gets into who is good. What does good look like? And I can't think of a more appropriate thing to talk about on Father's Day than just this idea that the premise of the whole thing is 
God's interest is not just having us look good. It's not just externals, but it's heart stuff. It's internal stuff. Years ago, I worked with a guy named Mark Johnson, who was 20 years my senior, was a longtime youth pastor. He was from Oklahoma. I don't know how he ended up in Billings. And one of his favorite sayings was, he would, he would always talk about, I guess it wasn't a saying, one of his most passionate areas would he would say, uh, the closer you get to me, the worse I look. And the human challenge is all of us are trying to keep people here because we're afraid of being known for who we really are. And I think that's what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount is a Jesus who's going, I'm not, I'm not looking at playing that game. Now that can become itself shaming because we just go like, well, I don't fit that bill. But that's what apprenticeship, I think, that's what discipleship is, is a Jesus who wants to spend the rest of your life drawing close and from the inside out forming us new and, and, and good from the internal sense. So he starts by talking about murder. And Jesus, like us, lived in a society that said, ultimately, you can't kill people. And so long as you do that, you're, you're good. And Jesus went, no, 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 there's this, there's this thing called anger. It's the problem. And actually, anger comes about because we, none of us like our wills being interrupted. And when your will's interrupted, that creates an emotional response. And, and if you're not careful, that emotional response is what leads to murder. But it also leads to contempt, which is what justifies murder. And we, can all, we all know this. We've had experiences this week where something makes us mad. And if we allow it, it gives birth to contempt. And contempt, when it's like fully grown becomes something far more than that. But the issue is this heart issue. Jesus talks about keeping a short, short accounts. And, and the great news is he's, he's not saying don't ever get mad. He's not saying good people don't ever get mad. He's just saying that they're emotionally aware of, of where that can lead and they do the work. And then he jumps into sex. And I gotta admit, I was terrified last week when I realized that we're talking about sex in the midst of our cultural pride month. And there's this like, what do we do here? But again, Jesus goes, you live in a world, and every human's lived in a world, where the, the conversation around sex is who can you and who can't you sleep with? And Jesus says, that's, that's not really where that conversation needs to start. It starts around this idea of, of what is that person standing next to you? Are they an object for your pleasure? Pornography and those things, that, that the premise is that, that other humans, uh, that their value is what they bring to you. And Jesus is going, that's, that's not what this is all about. There's this desire for there to be more to it than that. There's this desire to see God in everyone. And then again, he gets into this vow piece. But if you're like me, again, it's like, what? Like, Jesus, home run. Like in the world of sermons or writing a book or papers, it's like, first topic, home run. Second topic, home run. Third topic, vows. Like, well, I'm good at that. How about you? But what's going on here? Well, Again, this is where I'm indebted to other scholars because I, I found this to be the most confusing part of the Sermon on the Mount for a long time. But the background that's helpful to me is this realization that our cultural river couldn't be more different than that of Jesus. That even when we believe in God in our culture, uh, we generally behave as though God's not involved. And I'm, I don't even necessarily mean that as an indictment, it's just an observation. Epicureanism, deism, it's, it's still central to our our, our, our Jesus and God mindset. In fact, yesterday I was looking at CNN. I do this thing where I look at BBC, CNN, and Fox News every day, and it's oftentimes comical just to see the way things are framed. And th th there was an article on there about the drought in the U.S., and it was the kind of article you'd come to expect that was all kinds of fear-mongering and all of that. And I remember just thinking to myself, this is so wild because of where my mind was this week, that for most of human history, when there was a drought, and I'm not suggesting this is better, I'm just saying for most of human history, when there was a drought, what was the response? 
It was a God response. It was this belief that like God send the rain, sends the rains, or the gods. I'm not suggesting they all believe in the same God or the same ideas around God, but some of these basic things that, uh, that, that make humanity sustainable, they look to the gods for that. And that was Jesus' world. So what's he saying when he, when he says, hey, don't, don't make a vow. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you've made to the Lord. What's he saying there? Well, as I understand it, part of this, and in fact, this is one of those quotations that's not totally direct, it's an amalgamation. One of the places you could go for the, one of the original ones is the Ten Commandments, because in the Ten Commandments, there's a command to not take the name of the Lord in vain, not take God's name in vain. Many of us have learned, myself included, that that means like when you strike out, you shouldn't say God or Jesus Christ, that it's disrespectful. And it may be disrespectful, but it's actually not the heart behind this text. To, to take God's name in vain is actually to leverage the power of God's name, the authority, the respect that comes with it, and to use that to manipulate or control another person. It's taking all the authority and saying, you don't have to think about this anymore because God says. My friend Fred, who's counseled more people than anybody I know, he has this line, and I, it's worth using. It's on yourself and others. If someone says to him, God said, then he says, that's fair, but this conversation's over. Like, if you're going to play that card, you're not going to put me in a position to argue with you about what God did or didn't say. doesn't mean it's not at times okay to say God said. It just means that's a powerful card. You know, this, two Fridays ago, I got a text, and it was from an unknown number, and it was a screenshot of a bunch of bike components. It was clearly kind of the build sheet for a bike. And I didn't know who it was from, and I kind of looked at the components. I didn't actually recognize, I recognized Shimano, but that was about it. It looked like it to be a bunch of kind of obscure brands. And I replied back, I'm guessing this is a mid-level hardtail bike. And, and they replied back, no, it's, it's a full suspension. And then finally they said, oh, by the way, this is, they told me who they were. I've known this person since they were in third grade or something, fourth grade. And so, so then we started kind of talking. Now, I'm not the authority on bike components or bike parts by any means, but we were going back and forth. And then at one point he said, well, the mechanic said it's a great bike. Well, at that point I was like, well, which mechanic? Now, there's two great bike shops in town, Great Divide and Big Sky. I, I like them both, use them both. I'm most familiar with Big Sky because it's almost right across the street from my house and in the off season they're open on my day off. So I, I know those guys. And he said, I said, which bike shop? And he said, well, Big Sky. And I said, well, who was it? Was it Life? Uh, was it Tucker? Was it, was it Evan? And he, he told me which one it was. And I was like, dude, th why are you asking me? Whatever he said, it's gold. Like, just cash that check. Like, just go with what he said. And, and, and I wasn't offended at all. I was just saying, like, I, I've used him for all kinds of input and advice, and what he says is reliable. Go with it. If he says it's a good bike, it's a great bike. Now, I'm not intending that to be a negative example, because like all of you, I, I, I actually live under this idea that Asking people for counsel, especially experts, is a wise way to live. But that's a positive example, I think, of what Jesus is getting at negatively. That effectively what that did was when he told me that guy's name at that bike shop, my brain just stopped. And I'm glad for it too in that situation. What if when Jesus says, be careful with your vows, be careful with citing the temple or the gold of the temple or God's name, what he's saying is your you're actually dismissing this basic element of what it means to be human, which is you get to choose. You get to decide. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, go ahead to that next slide, Donnie. 
By the way, Donnie's running slides this morning, who, who's about to be a freshman, because months ago we said, hey, if you just circle one weekend in June, one in July, one in August, that'd help us make gatherings happen. And Donnie approached Justin that weekend and was like, I'll help. So nice job, Johnny, Donnie, and thank you. So here's Willard. So they say, by God or God knows to lend weight to their words and presence. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they're focusing upon to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly up to them. What if Jesus is getting at here and he knows better than most, better than any. Remember, he he likens himself to the spoken word. Creation is said to have started with a spoken word. Jesus becomes synonymous with a word. What if he understands the power of language, and also understands that if left to itself, it actually undoes the way God wants things to go. I mean, think about how this story starts. This has always been so scandalous to me. This story starts with a God who, just like every parent, just like anybody, any entrepreneur, just like anybody who's ever had an idea and went for something, this God had ideas, he had wants, he has desires, he, he brings creation into the mix with him, or people into the creation mix with him. Things are moving forward, he's got his arm around them, there's places they're gonna go and people they're gonna see, and what happens? I mean, like, the, the, the plane barely gets off the ground, and people opt out. They go a different direction. Question, did... Did God design things in such a way that they only did that because they like found a niche in his programming? Like they they found a chink in his armor? Did they somehow kind of wiggle through a cell that he thought was completely secure? Or is that decision to go opposite of the heart of God, is that fundamental to the way God made things? And how do we translate that to parenting and leadership and friendship and myriad other things. Uh, about a month ago, there was a, a guy that I've coached with for a few years. He coached one of my boys, really both of my boys in baseball for years, but one of them since he was eight. And so he asked, or I offered to help with his league team this year, just, I just enjoy him. My son wasn't on it anymore, but so I've kind of stood in the dugout about once a week with him. And, and this guy, uh, both in personal accomplishment as well as coaching accomplishment, coaching and playing, like, he, he knows more about baseball than anybody I've ever personally known. He's more authoritative than anybody I've personally known. So I was in the dugout with him about a month ago, and there was, here's the play. There's a pitcher on the mound. Our, our, our team, the Blue Sox, city champs, by the way. Um, pitcher on the mound, runner on third base, two outs. Other teams obviously up to bat. Um, as our pitcher is in the midst of delivering the pitch, the, the home plate ump yelled, balk. Our pitcher throws the ball, Uh, The batter hits it, hits it to second base, runner from third scores, second baseman fields the ball and throws the guy out at first base. And then there's a conversation. Like, in fact, the initial conversation, and to everyone's credit, it was never heated, nobody was ever cantankerous, but the the first conversation was, does the run count? Now, in the world of baseball, the the run doesn't count because it's, you know, if the last out of the inning is a force out, then the run doesn't count. But then there's this whole conversation of, does the out count? Because it was a balk, but the kid chose to swing at it and ground it out to second. Is the kid out? And, and, and my friend got involved. Again, super knowledgeable baseball guy. And he's like, hey, he, he took a swing. He took the risk. He's out. There's a conversation. Umpire calls the head ump. Head ump says, no, he, my friend, he's wrong. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a no risk, high reward situation. So the <clears throat> batter has to go back to the plate, run scores because it was a balk. And we keep playing. Out doesn't count either. 
So my friend looks at me and he's like, Adam, get, get on your phone, look up the rule book, look for this rule. And, and so I'm looking it up the Babe Ruth rule book and it probably took me 10 minutes. And as I was finally reading the rule, there was this moment of like, wait a minute. I know the answer. Like, I've been coaching kids for a while too, and we've always told them, if you hear Bach yelled, and then you see the pitcher throw the ball, swing for the fence. Because best case scenario is you hit a home run. Worst case is if you swing and miss or ground out, it doesn't count. And I'm thinking this, and so in other words, my friend was wrong. And he was graciously wrong. I'm not trying to throw him under the bus at all, but what occurred to me in that moment was I, I so respected him and his point of view that I actually suspended my own ability to think. I, I didn't even slow down enough to go like, what do you think here, Adam? And not what do you think in the sense of like, I don't have any authority, like what's your understanding of what's correct in this situation? What if the heart of what Jesus is saying there is there's a way of citing God and referencing God and pointing to the history of God that if we're not careful, actually undoes the very way God wants creation to happen. Easy? No way. To look different than when you're, when you're parenting or grandparenting a four-year-old, then an eight-year-old, then a 12-year-old, then a 16-year-old, then a 20-year-old? Of course it does. Incredibly difficult. You know, I was thinking this week, I still remember when COVID happened last spring, and we all do, to the extent that we've allowed ourselves to think about it yet, and I still I have this memory. It must have been late March, early April. Uh, there, was a, there was a Tuesday morning. I was on my way to work. My wife was already at work when she, she works at the hospital. So when she goes, she's out of the house by 6.15. I still remember walking out of the front door of our house, closing the door, headed to work, and knowing that my wife was at work and I was headed to work, and my three boys, two middle school, one high school at the time, were, were in bed. And I remember I was just furious. Like, I'm not blaming them, I, I, but I just was mad. I was mad at the whole situation. I think my kind of blue-collar roots, there's just, there's just nothing about, like, sitting around. This is not a privilege that, that I think we ought to enjoy. I, just, I was just furious, and I, I spent a couple months just mostly angry and all too often angry as a dad. And Teresa was, of course, very wise and kind of walking us through this, and because of what she does, she sees her own kinds of trends, and so she was coaching us through some of this. And there was a point where I remember a, a, another friend of ours who a couple years prior to this, uh, he, he told us a story. It was actually at his son's graduation party. And he told us this story about when his son was a junior in high school. It sounded like it was pretty early in his junior year. His son brought home a report card. And uh, he handed his dad his report card, and, and it was bad. Now, I don't know by whose stand, but obviously by his standards, we didn't talk about like what was, we all have different kind of metrics of like what's acceptable, what's not. I, I don't know what the consequences would normally be, but clearly the son was expecting uh, another dose of the consequences in place. And the dad, as he told the story, and he was actually saying this at the graduation uh, party to say like this was the moment where things changed. He said he, had, he just was able to take a deep breath and he handed his son his report card back and he said, it's your life, son. And in two years, uh, you should have graduated from high school, and you're an adult, and you'll have to provide. And the implication was, don't plan on living here and eating my groceries. It's your life. And I just wonder, obviously it stuck with me, I just wonder if that speaks to the heart of God. So that kind of changed the culture. And I didn't actually even think about this, but over the last couple of months, I've met with a couple of people 
And, and you know, sometimes you say things out loud that you've actually never like written down or anything, and you're like, whoa. In a couple different instances, people have asked me, so how are the boys doing? And I've caught myself saying, they're all doing really well, each in their own way, but all I think within God's definition of well. What if one of the real dangers of being human is is we try to control other people's lives to either reflect our own or prevent them from doing the things that we do? And what what if that's part of what Jesus is getting at here? Be careful with your words. Be careful with your control. You know, in the world of theology, there's there's something called open theism. You you may have studied it. I I spent, I had a professor in college who I I think would probably be open theist. I've spent some time exploring it. I would not call myself an open theist, but I I think there's some components to its way of thinking that are actually really honoring of the text and the story. Open theism, what it's really attempting to do is say, it, it answers the question, to what extent does God control and manipulate the future it answers it in a very open way, a way that says God is inside history. I mean, their most famous thinker, who's a pastor in the Minneapolis area, I mean, here's the most extreme example. The first Sunday after September 11th, he stood on the stage and said, God was surprised by what happened on September 11th. They see God as in space with us, experiencing things with us. Well, several years ago, a group of friends and I were reading through John Goldingay's commentary on the Old Testament, and he at times sounds very open theist. He looks at things like Genesis 6, where God weeps that his creations went a different direction than he would have wanted. And so I, remember, I reached out to John Goldingay, and sometimes these guys don't email you back, and sometimes people like him will go, yeah, let's talk. And he was one of those, let's talk. And so we did a thing on the computer, on the screen, you know, like Zoom or whatever, back before it was horrible. And I remember I asked him, I said, so John, are you open theist and how do you make sense of this? And he said, Adam, here's the way I see it. Here's the way I see the story and the unfolding relationship with God. As he said, I see people, and I think it's important it's not a person, a people, we walk as a people together. I see people on this path with God and God walking right next to them and the path is unknown and therefore the future is by definition unknown. And then he said, and simultaneously, I see God outside of creation, outside of time, present to people and circumstances in a way that he can't be inside of time. Now, in some sense, it's, a, it's, it's like the perfect cop-out. He's not really answering the question, but he's speaking to the tension, what we've talked about as the mandorla, these two circles for, for weeks, that the truth is often in the intersection of things. Jewish people would call this block thinking, that, that open theism, it's there. A God who's in time and space with us and genuinely grieves and celebrates with us, that's in the text. And yet, so is a God who's outside, who does respond to prayer, who does manipulate circumstances. I think I, more than anybody, don't want prayer to be that kind of prayer, but guys like Dallas Willard just won't let me read Jesus without accepting. That's a component of what it means to follow God. And Jews call it block thinking because they say they're both blocks. They both exist. We don't know the relationship between them, but we respect they're both there. What if Jesus is getting at here this hard? Like, what, think of it this way. What is God's security towards creation having the outcomes that he wants it to have? Like, what is God's hope Did he write the perfect program that had no flaws? Did he create the perfect cage? Does he have the perfect remote control? 
what is God's perfect plan? I would suggest, and I can't claim to embody this ever in my life, but, but isn't his perfect plan, doesn't it come to fruition in the cross? I don't mean like the historical moment, that too, but, but it's the character trait that led Jesus to the cross, isn't it? As a parent, shouldn't we be able to appreciate that, that God was staking the hope of the future, not on you, not on me, not on his computer program. He was staking the hope of the future on what? His character. The core of who God is. What, what if Jesus wants us to parent within this space? Think of the, think of the, the birth narratives around Jesus. I, I think the most trouble I've ever been in was something we did on the second Christmas Eve, and I think some of it was probably trouble I should have been in, but I just, there's something about the birth narratives that's always messed with me. I mean, if you take the extent to which it's true, which I believe it is, but how much hope God placed in the Messiah, the life and death and resurrection of the Messiah, and then you pair that next to the extent to which God didn't control the outcomes, it's absurd. So God says, I'm gonna show up as a human, I'm going to put creation back to rights. I'm going to put the law on. I'm going to live it out. And so what does he do? Well, he shows up as a fully developed 22-year-old, pre-programmed with the heart of God. No. He shows up as a helpless, largely ignorant, and if I think if you take the humanity of Christ seriously, there's not a pre-installed computer chip that just gets downloaded as things happen. He shows up as an infant. Okay, so... He shows up as an infant, but at least he shows up like the son of the most brilliant religious person or people ever. He's born in a time when some estimates say 50% of female deaths in Jesus' lifetime came as a result of some sort of complication from, from reproduction. He shows up at a time where like his mom was a surgeon and his dad was also a, a surgeon, where it was safe and secure. He shows up as the, the son of like a king and a queen. No to peasants who were peasants to the extent that he's born in a barn. Okay, so he's born in a barn, but at least it's their 10th kid because they'll know what the heck they're doing by that one. Huh. First kid. 13, 14-year-old mom. 17, 18-year-old dad. All the hope of the world in their hands. Okay, but, you know, the baby comes out of the chute and then the placenta, which doesn't get much dignity, and then at least attached to the placenta was this, like, golden tablet of instructions for how to raise the Messiah. No. What, what does the incarnation tell us about God in the way he does and does not do control? Does that mean God doesn't claim his authority? Does it mean he doesn't have boundaries? H how do we marry a God who... It sure seems clear the text says we're all going to be judged. We're all accountable with a God whose controlling mechanism is scandalously not in place. What if that's what Jesus is getting at here is his creation is in a large extent designed to respect people's options to choose. Dallas Willard will often say, he'll say, you know, people will say, if God's real, why doesn't he just show up because then I'll trust him, then I'll follow him. And Dallas says, look at the narrative. In the instances where God did that, it didn't go well for people. 
And if nothing else, what he says is we have such a small world and such a big God that God would so overwhelm your senses that he wouldn't do that to you. It it defies the core of his character. What if to be a parent, to be a friend, to be a leader, is to live in this tension? This is the way Dallas says it. Just one, one more quote from Dallas on this section. He says, kingdom rightness, it respects the sole need of human beings to make their judgments and decisions solely from what they have concluded is best. It is a vital, a biological need. We do not thrive, nor does our character develop well when this need is not respected and this thwarts the purpose of God in our creation. What does it look like? And I guess I just have a a few questions for you. First of all, is it possible that the God you don't believe in or the God you don't believe in anymore, is it possible that he looks nothing like the person of God himself? And would you be open to the idea that the whole purpose of the incarnation for every generation is to take what we think of God and what Christ represents God as and make sure that we're at least rejecting God on the merits of Christ, not this other construction. And the extent to which you don't feel like you've done that work and you're willing to acknowledge it, chances are you're sitting next to somebody, and if not, I, I, myself, the team, that's what we're here for, is to help you do the work of going, how do we differentiate the God I don't believe in from who Christ said God was? Which doesn't mean that the decision's sealed, but it at least means you're giving Jesus a chance. And also, I think my question is, are there relationships in your life? Have you developed a posture, maybe as a parent or a spouse or a leader or a friend or just, frankly, a human? Have you developed a character that is so prone to white-knuckle control and, and God just knows, like, mm, I made you for better. So we're going to give you some space. We'll have communion elements up here, and Hannah kind of explained how we do that, and, I just want to give you some space through music and communion to kind of process that. And as you do, I want to pray. Um, God, your, your character is astounding and so beyond anything that I just can imagine that we would design. God, I think of you even in the events around the flood and the way you just seem to have sincerely grieved that things went in such a different direction. But that would also mean that the way is is open in many ways. And that's not to say that there aren't boundaries. It's not to say there's not right or wrong, God, but that your definition of what it means and looks like to live out your followers is maybe more expansive than we realize. God, I I pray for moms and dads and grandparents and friends, leaders, bosses, employees, entrepreneurs, Uh, This is no easy thing, Lord, and it just strikes me that anybody who has the the gumption to try to do something good is going to struggle with the dark underside of control. And so I pray that you'd lead us through this, that you'd give us self-awareness in those key moments, uh, that you'd give us the kind of disciplines that we have in place every day that create space for you and your spirit to just prompt us to identify micro-interactions where we can celebrate living within your character and own up to where we didn't. Jesus, our, our desire is to represent you to our community. 
And there's this tension because uh, we love our community and there's, we love being present to it and yet we also recognize that following you has always made people distinct and so would you give us wisdom in that respect? We love you. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.